Do you ever get distracted? <laughs> Wander? Um, some of you are sitting there going, like, distracted? I've been distracted multiple times already this morning, and I know more are going to come this afternoon. You find that there are many, many things in life that capture our attention, and some of those things actually get us off a path that we really should be on. It's pretty easy to get off course, isn't it? There's so much flurry going around us. And before we go to what God has to say to us from Daniel chapter 2 about living life right now, I just want us to be reminded of how special this is, what God has provided and what God has done, and how amazing it is when you and I get to experience a grounding whenever we come together to worship God and to study His Word. Isn't that true? Uh, we need it desperately because our, fully, our feet are not always planted on the solid rock. And this sort of time together, whether you're here with us or you're watching online, we get our feet replanted on the solid rock. We can get all worked up over all the current issues that are going around us and all current events, and that is never going to change until Jesus comes back, all right? Those, those, the stuff's always going to be there. But that can't define our life, our life as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's why we now turn to the Bible, because it's what defines our life. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts and minds? Father, your word is precious. We want to treat it that way always, not only by what we say and teach and preach this morning and how we take it in, but how we respond how we respond when we go out the door, how we respond tomorrow with our children, with our spouse, at work, wherever we find ourselves. And Lord, we're thankful, so thankful that you've provided it for us in so many different ways. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and look forward to what you're going to do through your spirit in our lives today. In his name we pray, amen. So last week, Daniel chapter 1, uh, we saw four young men, right? Four young men, probably around the age of 14 or 15, according to the historical documents, who were handpicked to serve in the victorious king Nebuchadnezzar's court, um, to be magicians and enchanters and vision uh, uh, revealers, all those things. And these Jewish boys, we saw last week, we didn't spend any time here, so I'm going to do a little bit right now. They're given new Babylonian names. It's part of the indoctrination. And, and, and check out, check out these Hebrew names, just the, the ones they had that got changed. Daniel. Daniel in Hebrew means, my judge is God. And that's come through already, hasn't it? I mean, and it's going to, we're going to get lambasted with this over and over again. He's re renamed Belteshazzar. Hananiah. The Lord has been gracious. <laughs> and, and he's a slave. He's been carted off. He, he became Shadrach. And, and Mishael. I love, I love his name. Who is what God is? It's a question, and it's rhetorical, because the answer is no one. Exactly. That's your handle, right? That it, hey, no one. Yeah, right. And he received Meshach and Azariah. The Lord has helped, and we're definitely going to see that even today. And he's re renamed Abednego. And despite being renamed Despite being ripped from their families and from their nation, 
and from everything that is secure that they've known for their short life, not to mention the coming three and a half years of a brainwashing attempt, these teenage men were determined, determined to maintain even their ritual purity. Moral purity is a whole other topic, and I think they were there. But this, this was, last week was about ritual purity, which we spent a lot of time on. And they're doing this in the middle of pagan moral impurity. It's all around them. It's dripping. We can't eat the king's food. And remember, God rewarded their faithfulness, remember, and their devotion. And he gave them special favor over and over again with the masters that they served special wisdom. And Daniel, we are told at the end of the chapter 1, he's gifted with the interpreting of visions and dreams. And chapter 2 begins. I hope you've read it. Remember I said, read the chapter ahead before you come because this is going to help you so much. Chapter 2 begins by telling us why God gifted Daniel the way he did at the end of chapter 1. What's up with interpreting dreams and visions? Surprise! Chapter 2, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. <laughs> you, you see the whole thing connecting, right? God's plan unfolding. It's, it's just astounding, and it shouldn't be. We should expect this. And he has a dream, and he's greatly disturbed by it. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter, chapter 2. So he summons his wise men, all, all, all these men who've been with him, some of them for a long time, and he asks them to interpret the dream for them in verses 2 through 10. However, there's a catch. Did, you, you caught that, right? There's a catch. Apparently, Neb, can I call him Neb? I don't think he'll mind. He's, he's dead. Uh, but uh, Neb was skeptical, so skeptical about their abilities that he asked them to describe the dream that he hadn't told them what it was yet and then interpret it. So you've got to tell me what the dream was first. And so the wise men, like, what would you be like? Be like, that's impossible. And the wise men protested. And you've got to understand the times they're living in. You don't protest. <laughs> you don't talk back to King Nebuchadnezzar, all right? Because it's... But they do, and they point out, which, which was true. It's humanly impossible to do this thing. There's no human on the planet who can do this. And they say in verse 11, the thing that the king asked is difficult. No, it's not. It's an understatement. It's impossible. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, little g, whose dwelling is not with, a, with flesh. I mean, and only the gods, they're saying, could reveal the content of the king's dream. Well, that was kind of Nebuchadnezzar's point, wasn't it? He's like, you guys, you've been trained, you, you do this stuff. This is what you do for a living. And I'm not sure you guys are the real deal. Uh, you're supposed to speak for the God. You're supposed to be connected some way. You should be able to do this. Well, here we have the perfect scenario. A perfect setup created by who? God. Created for God, as we're going to see. A setup that God preordained to take place to fulfill His will on the earth. He's angered by the response. And so he orders their execution. I mean, they probably saw it coming. That's why they were just kicking up a stink. But he orders an execution not only to the guys he's talking to, but he says, every wise man in the province of Babylon is toast. You're all going to be killed. Now, who would that, who's that going to include? 
Daniel and his three buddies, who we read about last week. They're still young men. This is just in, uh, a few years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. <clears throat> so they're, they're probably still teenagers at this time, maybe 18, 19. And when Daniel heard the news, we read. And how does he hear the news? Knock on the door. Hey, Daniel, I'm here to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to take your life. And Daniel's like, what? And he hears it directly from the guy who's supposed to take his life. And he asks for a temporary stay of execution. It's in verses 14 through 15. And as amazing as that kind of a request from a young man to the king of the known world is, he gets it. He gets the stay. He gets some time. Again, it's just like chapter 1. Over and over again, Daniel and these three guys are receiving the favor of God with the captors that hold them. You see, when God places people in specific locations with particular tasks, they are able. They're able as He enables them. Now, if that doesn't give you and I confidence as we go out into the world in which we live, we who have been placed by God exactly where we presently live. This is no accident. And you have made, maybe made some bad choices to end up where you think you are now, but God is over all of this. You're exactly where you presently find yourself because God has put you there. And if, you, if we don't understand that, I got nothing else. <laughs> this is what Scripture plainly teaches us. Don't ask me to explain it, because I can't. But it's true. And notice verse 16. And Daniel went in, and he requested the king to appoint him a time. So he makes an appointment with the king of the world. That he might show the interpretation to the king. And this is before Daniel even knows the interpretation. This is before, any, this is just right out of the gate. And Daniel goes in and he, and, and he doesn't know the dream, he doesn't know the interpretation, but he makes the appointment to come before the king to lay it all out. He's anticipating that God will make this happen. Is that trust or what? And Daniel's not distracted. Daniel hasn't wandered off the path by all the distractions. He's not distracted by the course of events in the world where this world power is obliterating all the nations, taking people into slavery, including his own country, God's country, the nation of Israel. He's not distracted by that. He's not distracted by the powers that be who are in control. As cruel and godless as they are, he's not distracted. He's not even, did you notice this? He's not even distracted in the presence of the guy who's there to take him out permanently. What do you and I do when we're up against a problem and there appears to be no direct answer to that particular problem? Verse 17. Then Daniel went home to his house <clears throat> and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them, this is what you do, to seek mercy from God. Seek mercy from God. Get on your knees, boy. 
from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Is there something you don't know? Don't ask me. (laughs) Pray to God first. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So there's a little bit of motivation there too, isn't there? It's a practical concern. You know, Lord, I'm 18 and I don't want to die. You've taken me this far. Is this it? And he and his friends pray for divine mercy. And during the night, lo and behold, we shouldn't be surprised, God reveals the dream and the interpretation. And then, of course, Daniel gets on his horse, right? And he rides over to the king's palace and he tells him the dream. He saves everybody from certain death and he's the hero. Not exactly. Verse 19, And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel, what? He blessed the God of heaven. Oh, if we would just stop in the normal course of an average day and just give God the praise. If we would just stop and give God all the acknowledgement, every bit of it, for what he is doing and for what he has done. And if you're wondering, well, what do I say? And and how do I say it? Uh, Note what Daniel does. Use him. This is the model prayer. This is beautiful. Look at this, starting in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Put it where it's supposed to be. He changes times and seasons. He does that. He removes kings, and he sets them up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness because the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to me, to us, the king's matter. It's a perfect prayer for the days you and I live in. I'm going to start to repeat it a lot more. So Daniel acknowledged God as the source of all wisdom before whose penetrating gaze everything, everything is exposed. God is not caught by surprise, ever. God is not sleeping. He's not detached from his creation. And then Daniel went to the king. So the dream, everybody wants to know the dream, right? Everybody wants to know the dream and all the other visions in Daniel. Oh, they're all exciting. They're wonderful. Everybody likes future prophecy things. But that's not the important part of the book. So what was that dream all about? Wait a moment. I first want us to look at the interaction between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar and learn. So before the interpretation, verse 26, and the king declares to Daniel, Daniel comes in for his appointment, and the king says uh, to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no. (laughs) No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, just like his guys before admitted to him earlier. Right? Same thing. I love this line. But there is a God. Would you repeat that with me? But there is a God. 
but Pete, I'm wondering about this, and all you got to do is go, there is a God. Maybe you should talk to him about it. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He's talking to you, a pagan king, and revealing things to you that haven't been revealed before. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in bed, he's a poet, at least in English, are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the other living people on the planet, but in order that the interpretation may be known to you, the king, so that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Neb, as amazing as what's coming next is, as fantastic as it's going to be, it's not about me, Daniel. It's about God and you. Okay, now the dream. Okay, let's get to the dream. So in his dream, the king saw a great statue with a head of gold. Yeah, we got a little picture up there so you can take a look at it. He saw a great statue. So there's a head of gold, there's a chest and arms of silver, there's a belly and thigh of bronze, and then there's legs of iron. And then on the feet, there's a mixture of iron and clay. And then Nebuchadnezzar also saw in his dream a rock. And we understand as we read on that it apparently has been prepared by God and it smashes the statue's feet, causing the whole statue to come tumbling down and to disintegrate. And then the four winds blow and they blow it away. And then that rock that has been prepared by God grew into a mountain that filled the earth. Whoa. So Nebuchadnezzar, he must have been shocked amazed, you knew, you know the dream. Unbelievable. Maybe he was a little pleased. Maybe he was a little afraid. All at the same time. And then Daniel interpreted the dream for the king, verse 36. This was the dream, O king. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, now listen to this handle that Daniel gives the king. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Whoa. (laughs) We'll get to that. And into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of men. It doesn't matter what nation you go up against. It's yours. And even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, he's probably right now going, yes. (laughs) Right? Even Jeremiah the prophet and some other prophets, but specifically Jeremiah in his prophetic book called Jeremiah after his name, he will say, he does say in there, by the word of God, that God will give the king of Babylon... All authority on the planet, for the time being, even over wild animals. Interesting. Now, if that doesn't change or alter 
your perception of the world, because nothing has changed. It is still operating this way. God is still operating this way. If that doesn't change your perception of what is going on in our world, or at least your theology about how God works in the world, again, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) This is pretty clear. And think about it for Daniel. One ramification of this revelation, which I think he already knew, is that Daniel, a child of God, a faithful, loyal child of God, is a pagan king's servant at that moment because God made it so. Verse 39, another kingdom, so this is, we're moving down on the statue. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron will be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. Verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together. So opposites don't attract. Don't read anything into that just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It, this kingdom that God sets up, shall break in pieces all things, shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, that kingdom that God sets up, shall stand forever. And just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to you, the king, what shall be after this? What's coming after you, Nebuchadnezzar? The dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. I'm reminded of the interaction here um, between Peter and Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus was asking his disciples, all these people are saying all these things about who I am. You know, he's a prophet. He's this. He's that. He's the other thing. And Jesus says, but what I want to know, verse 15, he said to them, what I want to know, but who do you say that I am? Because that's what really matters. And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you all say that? Yeah, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. I do. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? Who's the revealer of all things? But my Father who is in heaven. He told you this. How do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you know, those of you who believe that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God, God revealed this mystery to you. God made it known to you. It wasn't you who figured it out. It wasn't me who figured it out. And he did it through his Holy Spirit. 
In verse 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And he's doing a little play on Peter's name here, which means stone. It actually can mean in its, uh, in its Hebrew form, rock. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church. Jesus will build his church. And though it is founded, as we read in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it is founded, the church, on the apostles and the prophets. We're also told in Ephesians 2, 22, that Jesus Christ himself is the what? He's the cornerstone. And we know over and over again that Jesus is the solid rock. Jesus is the only foundation. He is the king of kings. And in Matthew, Jesus goes on with Peter, and he says in the in rest of verse 18, And the gates of hell, death itself, will not prevail against it. That's this coming kingdom. This is how strong I'm going to make it as it rests on me. Even death itself, because God, he's the one that dictates the times. God dictates the seasons. God dictates who gets the power, who gets the glory, and who dies when. Verse 19, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we don't have time to get into all the details of this and compare it to Roman Catholic theology and all those things. I know you're dying to know that, but we've talked about this before and we'll talk about it again. But for now, the church is what he's talking about. The body of Christ. You and I who represent Jesus Christ on this planet We have been given a season of victory before he comes in his full revealed glory, the rock we saw in Daniel. And he's going to take down the statue, the whole thing. Question, do you and I conduct ourselves on a daily basis as victors or as the defeated? Good question to consider. And we'll be getting more and more clarity on this image as we get on in Daniel. Um, But you're going to see that what I'm going to do here is I'm going to interpret the differing metals within this entire image that Daniel has just shared with King Nebuchadnezzar as representing four chronologically successive kingdoms. That's where we're going to go. But the single statue, at least to me, suggests that these four kingdoms, though they're so diverse in their nature and their identity and their time frame in history, they actually comprise one entity, a statue. A world opposed to God is what they represent. It doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne. They're always opposed to God. And yes, God sets it up, Yes, God in his sovereignty grants it power, but these empires, no matter which one you look at, typically do not acknowledge him like he should be acknowledged. And it's always been that way. It's always been this way. Successive rulers on this planet since Adam and Eve, and for the most part, they're full of themselves. 
They're full of themselves and opposed to God, and I believe this explains in the best way why the entire statue is depicted as being destroyed by the rock, not just the feet of clay. They're the final strike, and then the whole thing comes tumbling down with a single blow delivered to the feet, and why this event is said to occur in the time of the kings, all these kings, that is, the kings of the four kingdoms symbolized in a vision as representatives of one world system that is always opposed to God. I want you to also notice one other really interesting thing to help beef that up even a little more. Did you notice the steady decline in the value of the metals as you went from the head down to the toes? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then some copycat iron clay thing in the feet. That's some more of God's irony. <laughs> it's all through Daniel. We're going to see it again and again in the next couple chapters. But it's God's irony in pointing out the futile nature of what it is we do as humans without Him. That the world's system of empires, no matter how great or small, through the ages of man, will all finally come crashing down. While God's kingdom comes, the world's kingdoms crash. It's inevitable. It's the way it's going to happen. So while iron does, at the bottom there, does symbolize strength, it's this outward strength and uh, ability and power, the steady decline in value shows us something I think we all already know. The essential substance of our world and its governments and its strength and empire is not growing superior. We're not evolving into something wonderful. We're growing increasingly inferior, more separated, more degenerate. It was predicted by Daniel in this vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar. World powers come off so arrogant and so puffed up and so proud of all their accomplishments, and we do it too, because we're drunk with power. We're drunk with the ability that we think we've created, technology being one of those things, gives us a sense of purpose. But the mixture of iron and clay at the end of it all in the feet reveals man's greatest strides have an inherent vulnerability. What you sow, you are one day going to reap. It is going to come down. So Nebuchadnezzar is impressed. I think he's impressed because he's the head of gold. <laughs> he's the king of kings. And uh, there are other empires coming, but it doesn't, he's probably in his head, he's like, well, at least I'm going to be okay. He's impressed with Daniel's abilities. Look at this, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. What? This is the king of the world who's just been told by Yahweh that he has been made the king of kings on the planet for this time. So understand the times. The Nebuchadnezzar is a god of sorts in his day. This is a huge thing that he's doing here. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to Daniel. <laughs> this is what they did in response to their gods. 
So Neb may have been this vain, cruel, self-absorbed narcissist. And he was, but he's being exposed here to something really special. An amazing new revelation about Yahweh, from Yahweh. And so the king answered, verse 47, answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Hey, maybe Neb is finally coming around. Well, hang on to that thought for a while. We'll see this later in the book. But then the king, verse 48, gave Daniel high honors, many gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon who are probably going, thanks for getting us off the hook, like literally off the hook. And Daniel made a request to the king because when you're in good with the king, this is the time to, make, yeah, this is the time to get in there. He's, he's a wise young man. And, and, he, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. It's like a fairy tale ending, right? You could end the book right here, but we're just beginning. <laughs> There's so much more to come. So just a little bit more on those three kin- kingdoms that follow Babylon, I think we need to do this so that we don't spend a lot of time when we get to chapter 7 where it kind of gets unveiled a little bit more, unpacked, because there's a lot more later in the book. There is no consensus on the identity of the three kingdoms that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to go one way, but there are all kinds, all kinds of ideas have been presented. But I think that the best view of world history and being consistent with all the images that are given us in the book of Daniel, especially right here, and how precisely they connect to known kingdoms that come after Babylon, I think it's likely that the arms and the chest and the silver symbolize the Medo-Persian Empire. And by the way, this is in your study notes if you want to download them online. Um, this is in the Daniel study notes, this, this uh, image here. And it did supplant Babylon, and it was divided and inferior because it was a divided kingdom. And the bronze and thigh, uh, the bronze belly and the thighs represent the next kingdom, which would be the Greek Empire, as we go along chronologically, who is Alexander the Great. And the iron legs symbolize a subsequent world empire, a fourth one, maybe Rome. We'll talk about that later. We'll get further clarity um, on the feet of iron mixed with clay when we look at Daniel's vision and he's a lot more clarity in chapter 7. But for now, I'll leave, let's leave the fourth kingdom just out there, probably Rome or some end time world empire that is yet to come or maybe it's here right now. There, but that's all, that's all the stuff everybody's interested in. That's why people read Daniel, unfortunately. Well, it's a good thing. But there are There's so much more for us in this book. And I think there's two key thoughts I want us to walk away with today expressed in this chapter. First, God alone is the revealer of secrets. God alone can not only make known the future, but make it happen. That's what he does. So beware of false prophets. There are false prophets in the church today, I believe, like never before. And they're rising up on a weekly basis. 
And they're making false predictions every week. And you and I have to have our biblically-backed Holy Spirit radar on full alert. We've got to be able to see this coming and not be so gullible, so nice. Oh, they must love Jesus. It's okay. No, it's not okay. And the second key thought is the kingdom. What does that mean for you and I? Look at verse 44 again. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. When is God going to set this up? Well, in the days of those kings. Some of those kings have come and gone. God's redemptive plan of salvation for mankind only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your sin, for my sin. God's plan to bring all his children who have put their faith in Christ's death on the cross to bring us to a final fulfilled salvation one day when we are not only spiritually but we are physically transformed into new creatures. Bring that day, like today. And then we all enter the kingdom together. God's final judgment plan, which is a part of the salvation plan, when everything is made right, when pure justice and pure mercy come rolling down. And these plans of salvation and judgment have been in motion since the beginning of time. As a matter of fact, if you read Paul's writings, they were put in motion before the beginning of time. So where's the kingdom? Well, John the Baptist was preaching during the days of the Roman Empire. Interesting. And in Matthew 3, 1, it says, In those days, the days of the Roman Empire, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And guess what he said? Repent, because what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And a short time later in that same chapter, Jesus comes along, verses 14 to 15. He comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. And and you come to me? And Jesus answers, listen to this. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness by his life the perfect righteous life Jesus Christ is offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel yes they reject it but that doesn't surprise God God's kingdom plan is taking shape before our eyes as we read the Gospels and as we live our life today And I believe Scripture leads us to a conclusion that one form of the kingdom has already come. And we, the church, the church of Jesus Christ's body on the planet, already live under Jesus Christ, the King's rule. Is He not our King? Is He not alive and on the throne? Does He not rule in your hearts? Yet complete fulfillment awaits, Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named 
not only in this age, the one you and I are in right now, but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under Jesus Christ's feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. When? Now. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. In many regards, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Specifically, the payment, the sacrifice for your and my sin. But the complete fulfillment of God's kingdom is expressed in the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is yet to come. Let me close with Revelation 1, 4-7. And then I'm going to ask you to rise. And we're going to sing to God's glory in His alone. Listen to these verses. Grace to you and peace. This is the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, like right now. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, right now. To Him who loves us and He's freed us from our sin by His blood. And look what He has done. Through him, God has made us a kingdom. He has made us a kingdom. There is now a kingdom right now. A kingdom, he says, of priests. You and I, pointing people to God while at the same time serving God. To his God and Father. That's what you and I do in this present kingdom. We point people to God while we serve God in whatever we do. And he gives us the power to do that. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, look at this. He is coming. There's, there's more. And he's coming with the clouds. So we have a king and he will come to establish his kingdom forever. And every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail because judgment's coming on account of him. Even so, all God's people said, Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray to our Father in heaven, which we're able to do because Jesus Christ died on the cross. Heavenly Father, we trust you. You are our awesome God, the revealer of secrets. And you've revealed to so many of us in this room today the truth about your redemptive salvation plan through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are amazed. We can't wait for the day when he returns. So, Father, in the meantime, we have been encouraged, we've been comforted, we have been energized to live as victors, to share this good news with everyone we meet, as you have ordained. And we pray it in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen.